So yes, you have to move forward and fail. I failed in my first business and I failed in this business after the crash 2008. So I failed again and I came back again because that's how you become successful. You get back up. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome back, Liberty Luchadors. To Lions of Liberty, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. You have found yourself here at episode number 225, which means you can find the show notes for today's show, featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 225. The show is sponsored today by our good friends at Health Excellence Select, who have put together the ultimate free market solution for your healthcare needs. Find out more at lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is a successful businessman. He is the managing director of the Neosage Group, a business consulting organization. In recent years, he has entered the political arena as well as a libertarian. He's coming off a recent run for the Libertarian Party's vice presidential nomination, where he came very, very, very close to earning that nomination. He is planning to announce his candidacy for the governorship of New York State, which will be contested in 2018. I am very pleased to welcome Mr. Larry Sharp. Larry, before I get going, I need to first know, are you ready to roar? I'm going to keep it quiet because I want to sneak up on my prey, so no roaring for me. But you're ready to do it when it's necessary. I will pounce when appropriate. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. I like it. Now, now, Larry, before we even discuss politics and your current work in the Libertarian Party and your potential efforts going forward to run for that governorship of New York, I want to really get to know you a little bit better. And, and you've got a pretty interesting background. So I'll kind of let you take it from wherever you want to go, because there's so many places we could start here. But why don't you just start off telling us a little bit about your childhood and your growing up and what kind of what some of your circumstances there? Well, um, I was adopted. We share a similarity there because I was adopted as well. There we go. My parents were biracial in the 60s and my father didn't show up and my mother was afraid that her parents and grandparents wouldn't accept me. So she was white from England and my father was black and what I know of, he was in the Navy. So I was very lucky that I was adopted very early uh, within a couple of weeks of being born by another biracial family back in the 60s. That was kind of the law. Like you really, they wouldn't allow you to be adopted unless the races matched. Was that literally the law or I mean? I know that's how it was done. I don't know if that was the law or not. So who knows? But that's what was done. But basically, they didn't think white babies should be with black families or black babies should be with white families. And and it follows there that if you're mixed, well, then you can only be with a mixed family. There we go. So that's why I say I was very lucky. You know, that happened to happen for me. So I was adopted and my adopted father and my mother, my mother was from Germany, uh, an immigrant from Germany. And my father was an ex-army guy over there. And uh, they divorced when I was two. I lived in the South Bronx, not the best neighborhood, particularly in the 60s and 70s. My mother met another man who was Air Force, all military. It's funny, all military. And, um, and so he's the man who raised me, and he's the man I consider my father, and he passed when I was 11. So from that point on, I didn't really have many positive male role models. So when I was a youngster, I was very good in school, like A+, plus, highest, everything, awesome. But I was trying to make my father happy. Once my father passed, I didn't care anymore. And I barely graduated high school. I barely got out. And I joined the Marine Corps. As I look back now, knowing I was desperately searching for positive male role models. And the Marine Corps gave me tons of those. I was very happy. I completed all four. I became the Marine, right? Navy, Army, Air Force, and I became the Marine. So all the men in my family have touched all four branches. 
So from that, uh, the Marine Corps, I always say, saved my life. It really gave me the discipline. It gave me the confidence, the leadership. It gave me all the things I really wanted, the positive male role models, people who I respected tremendously, told me how to be a man. So it really made me uh, capable of getting my college degree and becoming an English teacher. I became a teacher for a while. Then I decided I wanted to make money. So I started to become a sales rep for a while because I didn't know how to make money. All I knew was to sell stuff. So I started selling a bunch of stuff. I took a bunch of sales jobs. From that, I decided, you know what? I don't want to work for anybody anymore. And I decided to start my own business. My first business was very mediocre, kind of failed, kind of succeeded. Depends on how you measure it. I sold it off. Then I did my second business. Larry, I, I want to stop right there for a second because a lot of people, when they want to go into business and they want to start their own thing, they're very worried about the fact that they might fail. So that stops them from doing it. Well, you're sitting here right now telling me you failed at your first business and yet you didn't even hesitate to just start another one. I mean, what advice do you give to people who are afraid of failing? Because to me, it sounds like failing is just, yeah, it's just a little bump on your story. It's just a minor footnote. All right. I don't read biographies of successful people anymore. I don't read any of them anymore. And the reason is they're all the same story. They all go out try something, collapse, fail, get back up and become powerful. That's everybody's successful story. The problem is most people don't get back up. Once they fall down, they go, I'm now afraid and they stay down. That's the majority of humanity. If you want to be successful, the number one thing you have to be able to do is get back up. It's one of the reasons why I'm a libertarian. Libertarian party is the only party that has the concept of it's okay to fail and not just that, we are worthy as humans as second chances. We don't want to regulate perfection. We don't want to create perfection. We want to create an environment where people test and try and fail. You will always fail your way to success. If you don't want to fail, you'll never succeed. It doesn't work that way. There's no way around that formula. So yes, you have to move forward and fail. I failed in my first business and I failed in this business after the crash of 2008. So I failed again and I came back again because that's how you become successful. You get back up. It's not about being the smartest it's not about being the savviest. It's not even about being the, uh, you know, being the richest. It's about being able to be the most resilient. That's what makes success. And anything you do, resilience is the key. Absolutely. So how did you get back up on your feet? And obviously, after that crash of 2008, maybe you weren't deflated. I guess a lot of people might have been deflated, but you knew that it was just time to change your strategy. So what exactly did you do to change that strategy and, and make your business successful, despite the economic conditions? Yeah, I made the typical mistake many people during that time, and that was I thought the faucet was never going to turn off. I was doing really well. I had my own office space, had a training facility in my office, employees on 3rd Avenue, Manhattan. I was rocking and rolling. And I had two big banks and big commercial real estate as clients, and when the crash came, I lost them both. And I thought, you know what? This will be like three months. I'll get around this. I'm optimistic. No worries. And I was completely wrong, completely crashed, and I realized, you know what? Sales training isn't the answer. And that's what I was spending most of my time doing with sales training. I shifted into leadership training because what I realized is people were doing more with less. You know, when you retool, and this is one of the reasons why we're so displaced in the economy now, you know, back in the day when you retooled, the retool from a crash always included lots of labor because you, you know, were building back up. Nowadays, you retool with technology, you don't retool with labor anymore. And that's why you have the big gap still happening and people being displaced. I did the same thing. I followed suit. I became a, a leadership trainer and I started running very lean. In other words, instead of having a large office, I had a smaller office. Instead of having employees, I have contractors. I do half of my work online, half of my work in person. I do a bunch of my marketing now online versus traditional. So I've used technology to streamline so I can be more effective. And now that I have more money that I could actually become thicker, I don't want to run thick. I still run lean. 
because that's the right way of running. So I retooled. I followed what you know was the right answer, which was it really was being uh, leaner and looking more towards overall influence and leadership to include dealing with lawyers, dealing with political um, candidates, dealing with small business, big business, and leadership really is the key. Management today is not the key. Leadership is the key because now you're leading minds. You're not managing processes anymore. Can you break it down a little bit more that your difference there, the, the key difference you see between the concept of management and that concept of leadership that you push forward? Sure. It's, again, this is exactly in line with libertarian philosophy. The idea of management is the idea of control. I want to control the process, control the people. And there's an old saying, every plan's perfect until you add people. Mike Tyson said it the best. Every plan's perfect until you get punched in the face. So with today's world where everything changes, I don't want to manage the process perfectly. I can't. I can't manage the people perfectly. I'm not trying to build a widget. If I want that process, that's overseas. That's not here in America. In America, I have to lead minds. So I've got to move people. And if I move people, that's leading them. That's getting buy-in, getting them to care. Because what I actually want is when my junior or my employee or my contractor goes out into the world and meets my client or my partner or whoever I'm working with, things will change. I need them to take Control of it, responsibility for it, and adjust on the fly. That is leadership. That's them having buy-in. That's getting them to volunteer to want to do it. It's not cracking the whip and making them do it. And good leaders today know that, the Googles of the world. They allow people to just experiment and try, and we've lost that in our government completely. We have moved towards centralization, control, regulation, and that's where we stifle, and that's where innovation goes away. That's why our education system doesn't function well. That's why our healthcare system is a disaster. The more you centralize, the more you ruin innovation, the more you ruin any initiative, the more you stifle change and progress. Larry, you've already made the connection here a couple times for us between your ideas about business and leadership and libertarian philosophy. But I'm curious, I know you discovered libertarianism around 2012 with the Gary Johnson campaign. We'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, but I'm curious what your political philosophy or your political leanings were before that time, during while you were building your business and before you had really discovered libertarianism, what were your thoughts on politics? Was it something that was important to you or was it just kind of something that was in the background that you didn't pay much mind to? Well, I've always liked politics. I mean, I've, I've always liked to talk about it and kind of try to understand it, but I didn't really have, I didn't grow up in it. Meaning when I was a kid, I grew up in New York City. In New York City, general rule, if someone has a D by their name, a Democrat, they're good. They have an R by the name, they're evil. That's simply how it works. What more do you need to know? Yes. Politics is very black and white, very easy. And as a kid, I grew up thinking that. But when I joined the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps is a, a very conservative organization. And, you know, Ronald Reagan was my commander in chief. So I began to think maybe these Republicans aren't so bad after all. And I started thinking maybe I've been uh, you know, fooled. So I went from being a Democrat to being a Republican. But in both those cases, I wasn't happy. I didn't see anything actually changing. I never saw a difference in the presidency. I saw a lot of talk, but I never saw anything actually change. I never saw anything get better for my family. I never saw anything get better for anybody I knew. My mother is a convicted felon. When my father passed away, she got hooked on prescription drugs and then eventually illegal drugs. And she was arrested and sent to prison. And ruined her life, and she never got a second chance, ever. I had to help her and bail her out. I saw that the system was against her. Me trying to get ahead, I saw the system was against me. There was nothing that ever helped me or even allow me to do what I wanted to do. In fact, if anything, it was a punishing system. It was not a facilitating or helping system. And it didn't matter who the president was. But when I heard Bill Clinton speak, I thought, ah, this guy's got the answers. And I went back to Democrat because I thought, you know, he cares. He'll change things. You know, and he was arresting more people than anybody. He was, you know, he signed Don't Ask, Don't Tell in DOMA. I mean, he was no better than anyone else. And 
didn't change the prison industrial complex, nothing. But he sure did sound good doing it. <laughs> he did sound amazing, and I was fooled by it. I totally believed that he was the guy. I voted for him. I thought he was the right answer. And once I realized he wasn't the right answer, I was really lost. I kind of became a Nader supporter because Nader wasn't an R or a D, and that was the best I could get. And then I realized he wasn't the guy, and I was really lost for a while. And that's how you know. Then I saw Obama speak, and I thought, okay, this has got to be it. it. He's different. He looks different. He acts different. He's the guy. He's going to change things, going to shake things up, make things different. And I fell for him too, and I voted for him in 2008. And then when that happened, afterwards, after two years, I realized he's just like the rest. He's Bush Jr. There was no difference in any of them. Nothing ever changed. They only changed. And then what I love best is they changed the rhetoric, meaning they talked differently, didn't do anything differently. When the people pushed them into action, they then took credit. And I thought, my God, this is like a scam. And I was really dis- uh, totally disenchanted. Like, this is never going to work. Who cares? Just go off my own. Forget about it. And then I heard Gary Johnson speak in 2012, and I thought, maybe this is the one. But I still wasn't sure to be fooled with you. I wasn't. Because you've been fooled before, right? Yes, exactly. I still wasn't sure because he sounded good, but I thought, you know what? The other guys, Reagan sounded amazing. So did Clinton. So did Obama. I thought they all sounded great. This guy's is another guy sounding great. So I actually did something which I hadn't done before, and that's when I went and went to the actual party. And I literally went online, and I went to the Manhattan Libertarian Party. I went to the Queens Libertarian Party, and I met actual libertarians. I'd never done that before. And you know, I have to thank Obama and Clinton and Reagan for that, for me not being trusting. That me, I actually have to go and do that. And when I met the actual people, that's when I realized this is the real deal. This is where I should be. This is what I should be part of. Before that, politics was just something sort of on TV to you. They were figures on TV that some of them you liked more than others, and you were disappointed every time. So at this point, when you finally really found something that you felt was different, was it more about just verifying that you weren't being duped, that you had to go there in person and actually get involved and meet these people so you could actually say, okay, I know this is the real deal now. I can actually believe this. I can actually attach my name to this. Yes, and it was the first time I'd ever actually given money. I mean, for the first four years... I haven't run for anything. I've been a member for four years. I haven't run for anything. But I give money to all the parties all the time. I wanted to support something. So I, I'm a member of both my local parties, a member of my New York State Party, a member of the National Party, and I give to all of them. I'm, I'm a foundation member in the National Party. I just give. I always do. And I thought, okay, let's just give because I wanted to support the party. And when they asked me to go to Colorado and raise money, I went to Colorado and raise money for the party because I wanted to support. But all of a sudden when I saw there was Trump and Hillary, I realized, okay – This is the year they can hear us now. This is our growth year right now. We're going to grow. And that's when I realized I need to jump in. And I jumped in and people ask me, why didn't I run for president? I didn't because the presidential candidates all had a higher profile than I had. If I tried to fight them, I'd be actually hurting and subtracting from the ticket. So I said, instead, I'll run for VP so I can add to the ticket. I thought nobody's going to support them better. I'm an executive trainer and coach. I'm a communications guy. It's what I do. I sell. I grow business. I build stuff. It's what I do. I communicate. There's no way that I can't support these guys, you know, the best of everybody. And I still believe that was the case. So that's when I ran. I talked to Gary Johnson first. He said, fine, go run if you want. He didn't really want me the time. He wanted somebody else. And I was okay with that. But he said, run if you want to. So I ran. And as you know, I ran hard. I ran to win. I wanted to win. It was a two and a half week campaign. I basically shut my business down and I was online, on the phone, talking to delegates, calling people up. I built out my website. I brought my guys in to do some videos. I shot a bunch of videos, made 12, 14 videos. 
And I went down there with a booth. I went down there with a team of people. I went down there with a ground game. I take it seriously. I dropped serious money. I went down there to win and 30 votes away from winning. So yeah, I thought it was the right answer. I think I'm a good messenger. I want to help people message it. I talk about emotion, not just logic. I understand that libertarians have been – we already have won the logical game. It's not enough. We've got to win the emotional game too. So I'm trying to get us to win the emotional game. And had Gary already announced his intention to um, sort of court Bill Weld as his nominee? I would, at the at the time, same, no. So that was right after you had announced that? Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Gotcha. So, and like you said, I mean, you came within 30 votes of becoming the nominee after launching a campaign only two and a half weeks before the election against a guy who Gary had been made very, very clear that he wanted to be his nominee. He even said that he couldn't really run the campaign that he wanted if he had anybody but Bill Weld as the nominee. So what do you attribute the fact that you were able to achieve this much success? You got a good amount of support on the first vote, which I thought was impressive. But I think what was even more impressive after that is how as this process went along and as we went to the second ballot, you saw other candidates dropping out and all of them put their support behind you. Derek Grayson dropped out, put his support behind you. Will Coley dropped out, put his support behind you. Everybody seemed to really coalesce around Larry Sharp as sort of the the non-Bill Weld candidate. What do you attribute that success to, the way that you were able to rally people to your side? There were several things. One of them was I thought I was one of the candidates who was really looking long game. I was in touch with everyone the whole time, and I told them, look, I know we're against each other, but we're going to be in this party for the next 30 to 40 years, and I'm going to need you in the future. This isn't going to be the last time I'm on the phone with you. So I can have you angry at me. I can have you disagree with me, but I can't have you not trust me. That I can't have. I can get over dislike. I can get over anger. I can't get around distrust. So I was very open with all of them and what I wanted, what I was achieving. I told them how I was going to attack, what I was going to do. I was very open with them because I wanted to make sure in the long run they could trust me. You weren't down there. There was a lot of backstabbing done. And when it was done and there was a knife in my back, I pulled the knife out of my back and I said, I think this belongs to you. That's what I did. And when I did that, they said, this guy's serious. He's in for the long game. And I am. I'm in it for the long game. You know, the odds of us taking over the country this year, slim to none. 30 years, very high. We can do it in 20 years. We can do it in 15 or even 10. It can be done. It can't be done this year, and I know that. So I I had my hand out the whole time. I was like, let's talk. Coley and I had a a certain agreement. We said, look, whoever gets the least amount in this first vote drops out, endorses the other. I told him that in front of everybody. I would have done it. He would have done it. He did it. That's how it worked. If he would have beat me, I would have done it. That was – we had put together already. We knew that was going to happen. That was already set up. And I was talking to everybody, but not just that. There's one more thing. If you saw me – you weren't there, but I was hustling for votes. I was shaking hands. I was in that convention center. I was walking up and down the aisles. I was shaking hands, hustling for votes. No one else was. I'm not afraid to ask for a vote. I'm not afraid to shake someone's hand. I'm not afraid to ask for money. I'm fearless in that regard. But I'll go one step further. In the debates – you ask anybody, I handily won all three debates. I clearly showed that I could put the message out, that I would attack when required, and that I would do it without being necessarily mean. I would do it with still a message, and that I also didn't distance myself from the radicals and people who are in the moderates. You know, there's a, our party as libertarians is a very open, wide tent. There are people who are you know, the anarchist side on one side and the Republican lights on the other. But they're all part of our party, and they're all valuable and important, and we, I want to keep them all. 
So I kept my arms and my ears and my mouth, everything open for all of them. And I didn't sit into – I consider myself a moderate radical. That's what I consider myself. But I am moderate. I'm not a purist. But I respect the purists tremendously, and they know that. They know it's not just lip service. They know I want to turn our country towards them always, and they know that. That's why they respect me, even though they'd rather have their guys, and I get it. They're radicals. But when they look at me, they go, you know what? He's radical enough. He respects us. He'll hear us. Yeah, that guy's okay. Versus some moderates who are like radicals, you guys are crazy. I don't believe that. But at the same time, I love our Republican lights. I get where they're coming from, and I hear them also, and I respect them too, and I think we can have a big tent, and that's – I think people understood that, and that's what they rely behind me. I'm about a big tent. The country is nowhere near a libertarian country. I can't wait until there can be a real debate on, you're too anarchist for me. We're nowhere near there. 20 years from now, maybe we can fight and break our our party up, but until that time, you know – our most Republican light and our most anarchists are all on the same page compared to the mainstream. There's no doubt about that, Larry. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how you apply the leadership skills that you spoke about earlier in the program to your political campaigns and how other libertarians can do something similar. But first, I need to take a minute out to tell our listeners about our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select. Now, I'm a freelancer, and I purchased my own health insurance, and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing, and as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative, and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing, a killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Four, nine, be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. It sounds like more so than even just your political philosophy and your political message that you were putting forward at the convention and that you were using to build these coalitions was really more the skills that you've been talking about in the first half of the interview, the, the leadership skills, the, the people skills, the meeting people, and really getting people to meet you somewhere where they can trust you. Like you said, they don't need to be able to check every single issue box off to be able to support you, but they do need to be able to trust you. And, and that really does seem like a lesson we can learn, not just in politics, but just about anything we do in life business, what have you, our relationships. It really is about building that trust with people first before you are even are able to deliver that message in the first place. That's what teamwork is about. When I do team building classes and sessions and business, I do the same thing. People think team building is about things like, you know, let's go out and play baseball together or something. Those are nice and I like those. They're good for camaraderie. When it comes to team building, it's about trust and being able to be vulnerable, being able to tell your boss you don't know what you're doing, being able to tell your teammate I need help. Being able to accept criticism from your teammate and being able to give it without being mean or nasty. That's really what good teamwork's about, and that's what building a party is about. It's about me saying that, yeah, I don't agree with what you're saying. I think there's a better way, but I still respect you, and I still hear you, 
And when you tell me, Larry, I think you're doing it the wrong way, you still respect me and hear me. That's not easy to do. That's changing corporate culture in a, in a company or changing party culture here. And that's why when I gave my concession speech, there was no if, and, or but in it. No, there, there was not. <laughs> None. There was no if, no and, no but. Nothing. It was let's move forward. What happened happened. I don't care. Let's move forward. Because I know a lot of people were unhappy with Gary at the time. I know they were. But you know what? Governor Johnson, and I mean, quick plug. I know some of them a lot not like it. He is libertarian. He is part of our Republican light side. No question. He's on that side. But he's libertarian. He pulled me in. He is one of us. And I believe that. And I support him. It's interesting, Larry, because I think one of the, the biggest criticisms, not only that I hear, one that I make, I'll admit, of Gary Johnson and the way he portrays the ideas of liberty is, you know, he often says, I'm physically conservative and I'm socially liberal. And a lot of libertarians will hear that and, and just they just won't like that because they say, uh, well, he's taking some from Republican. And when I say they, I'm, I'm saying me, too, because it does bother me as well. Absolutely. But at the same time, you know, you came on that stage and said that, you know, when you heard Gary Johnson speak, and I can only assume he was speaking in similar ways during 2012, I was listening to him back then. I don't think it was all that different. You heard that, and maybe it wasn't the pure libertarian message, but it was enough to get you to say, okay, this is not the Democrats and Republicans. This is something different. This is something I can get to. So maybe you can just speak to that on a minute, that, that how you feel about that way of portraying libertarianism, because while some people might not think it accurately represents it, I think other people like yourself can say that it, it does serve a purpose, and it is able to get people into that tent, into that party, into the place where maybe people like me or other people are able to influence them first. I completely agree. Look, as I said, he's one you know, piece of our party, but he's clearly a libertarian. He's just one part of us. That part does have value. I didn't believe I was anywhere near as radical as I actually am. I didn't believe it. I thought I was more of a Gary Johnson straight libertarian. But when I met the people, I began to realize, oh, I'm more radical than I thought. So, look, I'm nothing but happy that Gary Johnson is part of the party. Without him, I don't join. Without him, I don't see it. I couldn't have realized how radical I was without him saying, hey, how about this? And the issue is if someone had told me, you know what? There is no place for government you know, in the world today, which our anarchist side says. In 2012, I couldn't have heard that. I simply couldn't have heard that. I would have said that guy's crazy. Now I nod my head when Daryl Perry speaks. <laughs> I nod my head. Yeah, that makes sense. 2012, I would not have done that. And I know that sounds bad, but it's reality. I would have said, ah, that guy's crazy. That's what I would have said. But once I met people and libertarians became humans to me, then I heard them. And now I'm like, yeah, that guy's right. Yeah, we need to be moving towards that. So, you know, I agree. Is Gary Johnson pure? No. Is libertarian? Yes. Is he valuable? Yes. And I think we should support him. I don't mean to be, you know, being a, a Johnson, you know, rah, rah guy. That's not my goal. But it is 2016. He is our candidate. And I support him because he's good. He's libertarian. And I hope he'll bring more people in. And I hope once they're in, we can pull them towards the radical side. 
well, it brings us back to this Trump and Hillary thing in a way, because, you know, I, I'm on a lot of Facebook groups where a lot of this conversation goes on, a lot of forums. I see all the talk out there and I, I see a lot of the criticisms of Gary Johnson from sort of purist libertarians, from people within the party. And at the same time, though, I might take a certain side in that argument at times. It really, and I don't have sides. I take everything on an issue by issue basis. There's times I'll praise Gary to the moon and times I'll criticize him. And that's how I try to treat everybody. Yep. But, you know, when you see people talking about Trump and Hillary and then you just you realize, oh, my God, Gary is just so much better than these people. It's just night and day. And that's when we really have to take a step back sometimes and say, all right, we can have our criticisms. We can poke fun. We can you know, disagree with the way that he might portray the message. All of this stuff is great. But when it comes to this election and the options being presented, by God, Gary Johnson is just night and day heads and shoulders better than these terrible, terrible people. It's almost like these parties want the libertarians to get attention. I mean, by just putting up forward the worst people they could possibly imagine. You know, I use the phrase often when I speak about libertarians and I call everybody in the party my brothers and sisters. And I do that on purpose because I do believe we are a family. And I know that sounds cheesy, but it is what I believe. I'm the hugs and kisses, love everybody guy. That's who I am. I speak about love because I know government cannot love, but people can. And that matters. That's what makes people happy. And the Libertarian Party really is about a pursuit of happiness. So I'm happy and eagerly put love and family into our party. And what I mean by that is it's okay if we attack each other. But when we look outside of our family, Gary Johnson's amazing. This is like we're brothers and sisters. You know, if you're my brother, I can call you ugly. No one else can. <laughs> no one else can. In fact, if someone else calls you ugly, I'm going to hit him. So I can call you ugly. So you know what? I can criticize Gary Johnson if I want to. But when I look outside, he's wonderful. He's my brother. He's wonderful. So I'm fine with us criticizing each other inside. I think it's powerful. It's good. It's libertarian. It's debate. It will move people towards the right answer. Hopefully, if we do it right, it will actually broaden our own understanding of who we are as a family. I love that. But when election day comes, our brother is running and we need to support him. In the battle ahead, you know, we are House Libertarian, not House Democrat, House Republican. And we must support our troops in the field. I'm happy if we fight on tactics. I'm happy if we fight on where we're fighting. No worries. But when the crap hits the fan, we must support our brothers and sisters. Well, Larry, I know that regardless of how this 2016 election turns out, you're going to remain active and involved in the Libertarian Party. And I know that because you've already sort of declared, while not formally, you have declared, I guess, your intention to run for the governorship of New York in 2018. You got a little bit of time ahead of you here, but can you just give us a little preview of why you're looking at running for that office? Why you think 2018 could be a big year for you to actually break through and, and become the governor of New York? Well, here's a couple things. Number one is... I've been working my regular job recently to pay my bills, right? But I have to get back into the actual political arena again. So I'm, I've been trying to come up with some ways to raise money for some of the candidates, go out there, help them. I have to help my brothers here in New York and do some um, – and get some signatures and write some checks for them here to get ballot access. So I'm spending some time doing that, but I will open up a pack eventually so I can raise some money to build out New York State so that we have a nice large party and infrastructure. So I've got a year and a half to make that happen. I've got a year and a half to travel the state. I've got a lot of time to start fixing and setting up to make my run. But more importantly, in New York State, for us to be an actual party and to get us to have real, real ballot access, we have to have 50,000 votes in a gubernatorial election. I don't think anyone else right now in New York State can do that but me. So unless some superstar pops up in the next two years, I'm going to run for governor so I can get our 50,000 votes at least. 
I hope to actually win. Cuomo may be in trouble, then he's our governor, and the Republicans never throw anybody of any real value up. So either way, I have a good shot of not winning, at least becoming number two, which would be a huge coup for us, and allowing us to have real ballot access. Right now, we've got to get tens of thousands of signatures. I mean, you know how hard that is. If we become an actual party, we can actually get you know 15 signatures. And we can literally run 30 or 40 libertarian candidates in New York State. And that's what we should be doing. We should be running dozens of candidates throughout the state. I think I can make that happen in 2018 so that 2019 and 2020 is an amazing year for libertarians. Look, I hope to win the governorship. I think I can. It's possible. It depends upon how bad the Democrats do in the next couple of years and how much time and energy I can spend in building the state infrastructure up. If I can do both of those well, raise enough money, I think it's completely possible. If Gary Johnson actually becomes president, really possible. We'll yeah, see. I mean, sky's the limit if you already come in there with a proven uh, you know, president. I mean, that would just completely change the game. I think, I think we can all see that. But I think, Larry, regardless of what happens in 2016, you've made it pretty clear. You're going nowhere. You're in this for the long haul. Uh, you're going to be a part of this libertarian party and a part of this liberty movement for a long, long time to come. And I think you're certainly a valuable asset. Larry, before I let you go, why don't you just give one little go around here of everything you got going on. Let people know about your business, how they can contact you and uh, anything else you'd like to plug. Please head to the Facebook page, Larry Sharp, Libertarian. I post every day. I'll still be doing videos and memes and quotes every day. Please join that Facebook page. It's very valuable to me. Let's me know what's happening. Feel free to reach out to me. If you need someone to help you raise money, let me know. If I'm in the area, I'm happy to stop by. Maybe do something together. I still want to make sure that happens also. If you're interested in any other work I have, feel free to go to theneosage.com, T-H-E-N-E-O. S-A-G-E dot com or feel free to connect to me on LinkedIn as Larry Sharp or Facebook as Larry Sharp. Happy to talk to any of you. Larry, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And like I said, I'm excited to see you as a growing part of this movement in the years coming forward. Awesome. Larry Sharp, comma, Libertarian. Facebook page. Take care, Larry. Bye-bye. Wow, guys. Are you impressed by Larry Sharp? I'm impressed by Larry Sharp. I hope that that's clear from this program, but I don't think I'm unique here. I think anybody that has seen this man speak, uh, that has seen him give a speech or participate in a debate at the Libertarian Convention, that's really the most exposure I've had to him, walked away impressed. Walked away impressed with not only the way he is able to convey the ideas of liberty, both philosophically, but also from very personal stories that he has throughout his life. And he's able to really apply that to the way he speaks about the ideas of liberty. I think we can all learn from not only the way that Larry conveys the ideas of liberty, but the way that he uh, conveys himself to other people. You know, this political game, like it or not, is a people game. It's about meeting people. It's about getting people to trust you. And only then will they listen to your ideas. Only then will they click a ballot for you. Only then will they trust you to be in a position to represent them. And I hope I'm doing a good job of representing you guys, because that's really why I do this show. I do this show for all the libertarians out there, all the liberty curious people out there, all the people that are interested in these ideas that want to just hear some honest conversations where we try to parse some of the stuff out, whether it's how to become a libertarian leader or looking at some of the nuances of libertarian philosophy. I try to provide you guys with a platform for honest conversations that aren't just filled with a bunch of hyperbole and a bunch of vitriol. I really want to get you to know my guests and, you know, over time, it's been almost three years now, guys, get to know me a little bit as well. Not only that, but I want to get to know you guys. So if you're on Facebook, why don't you come join us at the Lions of Liberty Forum? It's our private Facebook group where we have all sorts of great conversations, not only about this program, but about the ideas of liberty in general, whether it's current events, 
philosophical questions, anything. You bring it on over there and we're going to have a good conversation about it. Plenty of great contributors over there and plenty of great fans of the show that have really been formed the basis for a lot of my interviews. And if you want to contribute and get some questions into guests, that's the place you want to be at the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook. Just type that in your search bar. We also link to it in the show notes for every single episode. So today you can find that over at lionsofliberty.com slash 225. Also, Follow our main Facebook page, please. Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Follow us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Helping our social media grow is a great way to help this program grow, a great way to continue to expand this conversation. Also, please, if you haven't already, I beg, I plead, please go leave us a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, everywhere you can get to. Because again, this is how we get in front of more people. This is how we take this conversation from a decent-sized if I do say so myself, small but decent-sized podcast to one that spans the country, one that spans the globe, one that invades the ears of everyone we know. (laughs) And next Monday, this coming Monday, we'll be invading your ears once again with the second installment of Mr. Johnson's Liberty Hood, our look at the Gary Johnson campaign or the Johnson Weld campaign we might say and all the good and bad that comes along with it and before that of course this Friday you've got another great edition of John Odermatt's Felony Friday a weekly look at the broken criminal justice system until next time guys I've only got one more thing to ask of you and that is of course to live long and live free